Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice in conversation with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Christy Hurt, welcome to the Leave Your Mark podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to see you IRL because I feel like we speak on Instagram all the time and especially because you are such a wealth of information. You are the founder of Christy Hurt Consulting and you work as an independent human resource consultant and executive recruiter. You have 20 years of experience in luxury and fashion specifically working with clients such as Chanel, Prada, The Row, among, I'm sure, many others. And before launching your business in 2009, you spent five years managing human resources for LVMH. That's right. Which obviously includes Louis Vuitton, Fendi, Marc Jacobs, Dior, Celine, the list goes on. So you left LVMH and you went out on your own. What made you want to do that? It was a combination of things. I had such an incredible experience at LVMH, and I'm so grateful to this day. And I actually had coffee yesterday with the woman who hired me, Edie Steinberg. Oh, Edie's a good friend of mine, too. Of course. And I had started even before that working in stores. So I worked retail in college. When I moved to New York City, right after I graduated from the University of Texas in Austin, I drove to New York City and had no real plan after abandoning my pre-med plan. So I had thought I would go to medical school. Uh, Same. And exactly. (laughs) Changed my mind. I read that in your book. When I abandoned those plans, moved to New York City and got a job in retail at Kate Spade because that was a brand that happened to be hiring an assistant manager in the store and worked my way up very quickly to store manager, regional manager of stores, opening stores for them, hiring and training the teams. And that was how I first got the idea that moving into a career eventually in human resources and recruiting could be appealing to me because I had some responsibilities in that area already in that stores role. So I had gone to business school while working full-time, and during that time was so lucky to be hired by Edie at LVMH Group and spent many years there learning the ropes of human resources. A big function of my role you know, while I was there was to recruit for key positions in the brands. So I had to learn all of these different jobs and learn how to recruit for any company in the group. And I flexed these muscles that 
I didn't even really know that I had, which was just constantly learning on the fly, figuring things out. But really what I was doing was evaluating whether these people were the right fit for the organization, you know, so I could learn the jobs. But what was most important was understanding quickly, is this someone worth meeting who might be a good fit for the organization and being able to assess that and quickly cut through all of the, I don't know, the fluff because, you know, we all have such limited time. So you have to be able to get to the heart of the matter very, very quickly. How do you cut through the fluff? Well, I think you have to know which questions to ask. I personally am a big fan of asking very short, simple, open-ended questions. And so you asked me one question and I've been talking for, you know, five, six, seven minutes. So you learn a lot about someone based on what they decide to highlight, what they want to talk about, what they find important. And I would say that I can usually tell within about three minutes, maybe less, sometimes within 30 seconds, whether this person is going to be right for the job. And it's not even, I don't even really have to hear what they're going to say. It's more a matter of how they start, how high level they are in terms of their approach to whatever they're going to tell me, their energy level. And I think that that's something that so many people don't understand. And maybe it's hard to control, but people who come in and have a low energy level immediately turn me off. And so I think it's so important to have that. I think what's so amazing about that is that that is not something you think about when you think about interview prep. Yeah. I mean, you think about, have you researched the company? Do you know who you're speaking to? What's your little elevator pitch? You know, reviewing your own history. Energy level? Probably not. I mean, that's great advice right there. So yeah. we, can, we can just end the podcast now because that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I do think it's good. I mean, sometimes you can't predict when you're going to be asked in for an interview, whether it's late in the day and you're tired or it's first thing in the morning and you're early. But I always think it's a good idea to drink a little bit of coffee if you drink coffee, you know, just have some energy, you know, caffeinate and just be excited and yeah, show, you show your enthusiasm and, course. you know, show that you're really excited to be there. I agree. I mean, you've seen it all, obviously. What's the biggest mistake you see candidates make over and over again? Well, I think that people often try to apply to things that they're not qualified for. And then they get very frustrated when they don't get called back or they, you know, send their resume, apply to a job online and they never hear anything. And they feel so frustrated, like there's this black hole. And I hear that a lot. You know, well, I feel like I need an in because my resume just goes into this black hole where I never comes out. And I often will say to them, which job did you apply for? What is your current job? Does this job align both in terms of job function, a company, product category to what you're doing now? Because if not, you're really just wasting your time. And I think that the people I have found in this industry who are most successful are the ones who pick a lane and stay in that lane. And that's not to say that I don't occasionally see people who start in one spot and end up in a completely different spot. For example, they might, a very high potential person might rotate through a marketing role, a merchandising role, and then into digital. And then next thing you know, they're a president of a brand. So I see some people doing that type of thing. But I would say more typically, you see someone pick something like you're an analyst or an assistant in marketing, and then you work your way up the marketing channel or HR or finance or sales or retail. I think that in this industry, most of the jobs are operational. 
And I think that people who want to learn a specific function and then grow within that function are going to see the most career opportunity. And so when generalists come to me and maybe they have some fashion experience, but it's not really the same. For example, they've worked in an agency or they've worked in some other industry that maybe they had one client that Mm -hmm. happened to be a fashion company, kind of. And then they're wondering why they're not getting, Tom Ford's not calling them back and wanting to hire them for whatever job. You know, well, I was a marketing director and they need a marketing director. Why wouldn't Tom Ford want to hire me? Well, truthfully, you know, Tom Ford is probably going to hire someone from another fashion brand doing something very similar with a very similar brand DNA. And I think that unless you're on the other side of the table where you're actually doing the hiring and you see it happen again and again and again, it's hard to understand that and connect those dots because people think, oh, I can do everything on that job description. I've done that before. But I think within the fashion and luxury space, what's really important to companies and to hiring managers is this idea of do they understand our brand DNA? Do they live it and breathe it? And can they communicate it? And do they have the relationships that we're looking for to build brand partnerships, to build, you know, experiential events, whatever it is, because there's so much more that goes into doing a job successfully other than just checking the box of I can do that thing or I've done that somewhere else. So if someone's looking on LinkedIn and they're looking through a job profile description, and let's say it is marketing and they're in the industry, whatever industry they're applying, they're in. How much of that list of skills do you think someone needs to have to apply to a role? Because I feel like even me, like sometimes in the past, I've looked at a, a list of skills and I've been like, oh, I, I have like eight of those, but I don't have like the last two. Yeah. So is that not something that I can apply to? Like what percent of the skills should you have when you apply to a role? I think you should probably have at least 70% of the requirements and qualifications. And I think that the more similar your company is now to the company that's hiring, the more likely you will be to get a call back. And I think there are certain things that job descriptions will ask for, like an advanced degree. You know, they might say MBA preferred or a master's degree preferred. And I personally don't think that that is so important at the end of the day. I think the experience is much more important than the advanced degree. I agree with that. So that's something that I think hiring managers are willing to overlook Um, I certainly don't think there's any downside to applying for a job. I mean, the worst case scenario is that you don't get a call back or get an interview, but there's no downside to applying. But I think that every job should be a little bit of a stretch. However, I think even a lateral role is going to be so different than what you're doing now. And I tell people that a lot because some people come to me when they're really frustrated in their current roles and they just want to do something completely different. And I do a lot of coaching around this idea that, okay, you are unhappy in this job for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's the people, maybe it's the product, maybe it's the business that's not performing. Maybe some of this is your fault, maybe none of this is your fault, but you could go take this job at a competitor and it would be completely different. Different business size, different players, different people, different relationships. And that job that you're in now is the job you're going to be most qualified for and the job that other companies are going to want to hire you to do. Mm -hmm. So don't try to do a 180 when you're unhappy. Start small. And you had asked me earlier why I left LVMH. And the funny thing is, 
I left and I basically did the exact same thing, but for myself. So there were a number of reasons. And I think that one was that I had twins and I had gone back to work after having premature twins. And I just decided that I was at a point there after five years where I didn't see an immediate next step. Mm -hmm. I was working long hours and I wasn't making a ton of money. And I was spending a lot of time and I wasn't seeing my babies Monday through Friday because wow. they would be asleep. Right. When I got home. True, true, true. I mean, I was gone. I, my hours were not that crazy working in human resources. And it's funny, I'm a Capricorn and it's so me to pick a career like human resources, which is so practical and every company has it and you can always find a job. And I'm really grateful I chose this career path. But still, you know, I live in Brooklyn and I was traveling to Midtown and I was leaving my house at 7.30, 7.40 in the morning, getting there at 8.30, 8.45, working until 6.30, 6.45, which is not that crazy, and still getting home at like 8 o'clock at night when the babies were already asleep. It's so hard. And I just felt like I didn't want to do that for 10 years just to have my boss's job. And we had so much work and... You know, I would go from meeting to meeting. I traveled sometimes, but mostly it was just 10 to 12 hours a day of just nonstop meetings and putting out fires and hiring and this and that. And I thought to myself, I have a great job and I've learned so much, but I'm doing the same things over and over and over again. And I'd always wanted to do something entrepreneurial and I felt like that was the perfect time to do it. And I wanted to create a business that I could adapt to my personal life and I could work where I wanted, when I wanted, and around my life, as opposed to fitting my life into someone else's, you know, definition of what a job looks like. What are the challenges of having your own consulting business this way? Well, I've been very, very fortunate in that I've just naturally, through my personality and the people that I just met in through the regular course of life, led to opportunities, clients. And I think that the exciting thing about recruiting for me is that even when some companies are downsizing, they're always looking to hire in another area, you know? So even during when I started my company, it was right after the 2008 recession and I didn't even feel that. That's amazing. Because in the beginning, my clients, some of them were looking to downsize, but then as business started to pick up, we were hiring people in a whole different area of the business. And as a consultant too, I was able to help some clients through a very difficult period where they really needed it. So I felt like I was able to be extremely useful from day one. I don't ever worry about getting new clients because there are so many companies, especially in New York City, but I also do a lot of recruiting in LA and in other cities, San Francisco, Dallas. I've worked in many cities all over North America. And I find that because I have such a small practice and because my overhead is actually quite low, I don't need to be recruiting for a hundred jobs a year. Mm -hmm. And if I have a couple going at once, I'm extremely busy and that's great for me. So back to candidates, mm -hmm. when you have gaps in your resume, how do you handle them? So I believe that if, I mean, every situation is a little bit different, but I believe that if you're someone with, you know, five plus, even 10 plus, 20 plus years experience, that a resume should really show the highlights of your career. And I don't think you have to put months in there. So meaning I see resumes and it's like 
March 2019 to, you know, December 2019. And then I started March of 20, you know, whatever it was. And I still tell people, just remove the dates. I mean, remove the months because if you remove the months, those gaps often just disappear. Mm-hmm. Let's say you did a consulting gig for six months and it crossed over from 2017 to 2018. And maybe you, for a few months, you didn't have something going on, but then you started something new. If you only did something for a few months and it was five years ago, maybe don't list it unless it was really impressive. But if you have significant things that you've done throughout your career, three years here, eight years here, four years here, those are really the highlights. And I think that that's what you should highlight. From 2000 to 2008, I worked at Donna Karen. From 2009 to 2015, I worked here. So I think you have to show career highlights on one page. We, so we can debate this. We can debate, or or you can just redo my resume for yeah. me, which is fine. It's really hard. It is. It's really hard to fit everything on one page. I think that everyone needs to have a one page. I think it's fine if you also have a two page. I draw the line at two oh, pages. I mean, I, I have gotten resumes that are seven pages long with horrible <laughs> spacing, and I just want to pull my hair out. But I think that a resume should be a snapshot of who you are as a candidate. And the truth is. I get so many resumes every day that I look at a resume for about 10 seconds. Not, not, not even. even. Probably one and a half seconds. Maybe three seconds. So, okay. So here's a specific question. Like I've noticed when I was hiring people, people have gotten a little nuts with decor on resumes, like the design. Yeah. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan either. Yeah. I do not like when someone has a picture of a ballerina at the top or <laughs> I don't you know, like when someone has a picture of themselves. Yeah. Well, so I know in Europe that's mixed, more popular. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about that because at LVMH we got so many candidates from Europe and it's very common there to have a photo and to list your marital status, how many children you have, your date of birth. Wow. And your citizenship and your, you know, all of that. So I'm very, very used to seeing that. And I think that LinkedIn has made it PC to hire based on who this person is and what they look like, you know, and that can work in a lot of different ways. You know, I, I see that a lot of companies are wanting to hire people of color or they want to hire women. They want to hire, you know, people with a disability. And so sometimes those things are more clear, more apparent when you have a photo and can actually be really helpful. Um, I wouldn't say put a photo on your resume, but it doesn't bother me because I had that experience and I saw it so frequently. But it needs to be the right photo. Oh, we can let let's, we should talk about that. Yes, please do <laughs> talk about that. So I think that I feel like you just spoke about it. I, well, I, I think I did a post about yes. this recently <laughs> and you commented on it. So strong feelings. Yeah. So I hate seeing no photo. I hate seeing a watercolor photo or a cartoon character that is supposed to resemble the person. I also hate seeing... We're talking about LinkedIn right now. I'm talking about LinkedIn profile photo. I hate seeing a picture of someone, the back of their head. I've seen this numerous times, the back of someone's head, or they're looking to the side and you can't really see their face. Maybe you see their nose or a tiny bit of their profile. Or literally them on a horse off in the sunset or something like that. People have all kinds of weird reasons why they don't want to show a professional headshot. And I don't really understand why. I've never heard a good reason. Some people are extremely paranoid about putting private information online. But 
unless you have a, a real reason not to, I, I don't understand why you wouldn't put a professional headshot. So my rules are, I believe it should be waist up. So it shows a little bit of your personal style that you're polished and you look professional. And whether you're looking at the camera or slightly to the side, um, it should just be you in the photo. It shouldn't be a snapshot <laughs> with someone cropped out. I think I said something about the Ralph yes. Lauren, you know, the time you stalked Ralph Lauren at a party and it's a photo of you, you know, you work in fashion and you're with Ralph Lauren and your profile photo on LinkedIn. I've seen that. Or like you have a picture of you and you're like your husband. <laughs> like why? Yeah. Or me and my, me and my baby, you know, <laughs> this is a picture of me and my baby at his second birthday. You know, that's not appropriate for LinkedIn. It should be a photo of you looking professional looking happy and with good lighting. I see a lot of profile photos where, you know, people are just, they're cropped out. It's so close. It's blurry. That's the other thing. It needs to be a good enough quality photo that it's not blurry. And also I think on a solid background. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like a busy, crazy, like a professional headshot. A professional headshot. It doesn't have, you don't have to pay someone to do it. It can be, I mean, even mine was taken with an iPhone but indoor or outdoor, it should just be, it should just be a nice photo. I mean, people are not going to obsess about it unless it's really bad. And yeah. I just don't understand why people. When would. it's bad, it is bad though. It's true. So cover letters, do they still exist? What form do they take? Is it just the email, body of an email? Like what goes on? Some employers do request a cover letter. I am not a fan of a cover letter. I prefer a very brief email with an attachment of a PDF one page resume and in the email, just a very brief what they're looking for. But I'm also a middle person between, you know, they're coming to me, I'm looking for a job like XYZ and they're not applying to the job with me anymore. Right. They did when I was working in-house at LVMH and they would apply specifically to jobs or they would attach a cover letter and a resume. When I would get those applicants or applications, I would not read the cover letter. Usually I would just look at the resume first and decide whether or not I was interested in that person for that role based on their experience. And just to go back to what I said about the three seconds. Yeah. I was just going to follow up with that. Actually. Yeah. Okay. Like what are so, you looking for in so, three seconds? Yeah. So what I'm looking for is I usually read the person's name and go to the bottom to see where they went to college and when they graduated, if there's a date there. And then I glance at each company they've worked for and the job titles. And then I glance a little bit at the dates and then I'm done. And that takes me about two or three seconds. And the reason I'm looking at those things is because I want to know, is this person smart? What kinds of companies have they worked for? What kinds of job titles have they held? And right then and there, I know whether or not I'm interested in them. And of course, if it's for a very specific role, whether they're at all appropriate for that job. And that's really it. And I love helping people. I love meeting people and giving them career advice, even if I don't have a job for them. However, I don't have a ton of time to do that. And I will still do it. But if it's someone who fits in that category where I don't have a job for them right now, but I might want to talk to them in the future or help them if they need help, you know, I don't always have immediate time for that. It's not, so it's more a matter of sorting for me. So. The bullet points on a resume that everyone agonizes over. Right. Who is reading those? The employer? Well, I think once you determine, like, let's pretend that there are these piles, right? Where there's someone that most people get thrown out because they don't have the relevant experience. So let's pretend you have a very small pile, let's say 
10 people maybe who do have the right experience. That's when you go in and you start to read through the bullet points. How big was that business that they were managing? Because sometimes you'll see this person worked at Gucci and you think, oh, this person's managed a big volume business. And then you get into the nitty gritty and you see that they were in charge of managing the costume jewelry for Gucci, which is minuscule. Right. And you although see, chic. Yeah. <laughs> although amazing, but may not be the right candidate for a leather goods role, which is going to be a massive business or ready to wear or whatever it may be. So that's when you have to go in and read the fine detail. What were they managing? How many people did they manage? How many people were on their team? What kind of events did they, you know, drum up for the company? Um, just generally, what did they do there? And I believe that statistics are very important, like percentages of growth yes. or like numbers need to be in those bullet points. Absolutely. Not yeah. just like, I did marketing. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that you want to see a mix of quantitative and qualitative achievements. And they should be really high level. And I would think about if you spent three years at a company or five years at a company, what did you achieve there? What are you most proud of? Where did you see the biggest improvements in your business? Mm -hmm. What was your biggest success? You know, if you close some major deal that you want to mention, but within certain functions too, it's important to highlight who your relationships are with. So if you can disclose that information, which sometimes it is confidential, but for example, in a wholesale role, you can say, Sold, you know, worked closely with brand partners, including Nata Porte, Shop Bob, Bergdorf Goodman, Barney's, you know. So companies want to know what you do sell to, mm -hmm. which buyers do you know? Which editorial teams do you know? So depending on the job, they want to know who did you work with? How many people did you manage? How big was your business in terms of volume? So those numbers should always be there. So going back to the cover letter, as far as I understand the one to you as far as like what their purpose is, what they're looking for. But to an employer, mm -hmm. I find that a lot of cover letters are sort of just like a little synopsis of a resume. What are the key elements that should be in your pitch to an employer? So I think this is controversial. I don't really want to know what's, I don't, I don't really care. I don't really care. I don't really want to hear someone's pitch. I want to know what they've done. And so should they just say, just sort of recap their accomplishments in a cover letter? Again, I don't think a cover letter is necessary. I think if a company asks for a cover letter, then you should put one together and it should say that why they're passionate about the company, why they're interested in the role, what specific things they can bring mm -hmm. that they've done, and maybe just highlight a couple of bullet points, just like we just discussed. Like, I have relationships at these companies. I've achieved X, Y, Z. But keep it very, very brief. I think the reason why I don't really care about the cover letter is because so few people at any given moment in time are available and qualified for any job. And that might be surprising to hear. Wait, what are you saying? What I'm saying is that when I launch a search for a job, what I will often do is like, for example, let's just say I'm looking for a wholesale director of sales for a brand, uh, let's say a ready to wear brand. I will contact every single wholesale director in fashion who works with ready to wear in New York City and maybe even in other markets such as LA or if there are other random comparable brands elsewhere, contact them as well. 
I will often contact 100 to 200 candidates, passive candidates. That means that they are actively employed at a competitor to my client. And I will contact them directly and say, we are doing a search for this company. We're looking for a wholesale director. And maybe this person is a wholesale director or a senior account executive or a sales manager or a VP of sales. So they have a very similar role to what we're looking for. And I will say to them, please let me know if you can refer anyone for this role. I don't go out directly and say, let me know if you're interested. Sometimes I do, but usually I just say, let me know if you know anyone who would be appropriate for this role. I've noticed this. This is like a trend. I've noticed Yeah, well, I think that we don't want to be perceived as directly poaching people, but that's kind of what we're doing. Ah. And then if they raise their hand and say, actually, I love that brand and I've been here for X number of years and I'm ready for my next step and I don't see a next step for me here, I would love to consider it myself. And then I'll say, oh, fantastic. Well, you have exactly the right experience for this role. But I will say this, I don't even post jobs because... When I do post a job, oh, I don't get anyone who's qualified or has the right experience. They're people who think they would enjoy doing that job, but they're not qualified and they're not doing it now. And those are the people that the clients want to hire. They want to hire the people who are doing it now. So let's pretend 130 candidates I have reached out to that are passively doing the same job or very similar job for a competitor. Many of them are happy where they are and they're doing great and they're happy and their business is strong and they love their team and they're not looking to leave. I might get eight people, five people, 10 people who do express interest. And then once I talk to them and I interview them and I ask them for their salary requirements, can't ask anymore what people are making, which I think is good. But we ask them, what are your requirements? What are you looking to make if you make a move? Because most people want to make 10 to 20% more when they make a move to a new role, which is understandable. So they'll tell me what they're looking to make. Usually, if they're qualified for the role, they're within the range that my client is looking to pay. But occasionally, they surprise me by giving me some insane number. Sometimes that's when they're happy where they are and they wouldn't leave unless they double their salary or something, which is not going to happen. Sure. So typically, the people who are most appropriate for the role are people who are ready to step into that role or they're in a similar role that's a slightly smaller size business. And the salary is comparable or slightly, you know, it's it's in the range of what we're looking to pay. Sometimes once I vet all those people, I'm You're left like, with two people. It makes sense. Yeah. So sense. sometimes I'm left with one person. And then I cross my fingers and hope that all the stars align and every interview goes well and the client's happy and the candidate's happy and they make an agreement and I help them negotiate the salary and they accept and they start and everyone's happy. And they live happily ever after. And they after. live happily ever after for 18 to 24 months. What? <laughs> what's the best way to prepare for an interview? Like, do you coach, like, when you get down to those two people, obviously, you want to make sure they're prepared yes. and perform well on the interview. Yes. So I'm lucky that most of the candidates and the clients that I work with are very professional and they do know what to do. However... I have had some situations where people did mess up and I'll tell you a few of those. Um, So I always tell them to go into the store to research the recent collections online, to look at the actual, regardless of what job they're recruiting for or they're interviewing for, um, look at the recent collection that the brand has shown online, go into the store to see what the brand feels like and what are the associates in the store wearing? What are the models in the shoot wearing? 
to get a feel for their brand DNA and to go into the interview wearing something very similar to what the brand DNA is. And that is very different for Tory Burch compared to Ralph Lauren, The Row, Prada. Each brand has such a different brand DNA. So you want to make sure that you go in wearing something that fits the brand. So I had a candidate once go into for an interview with a brand that is very monochromatic, very clean, very sophisticated, very mature, very polished. And she went in there wearing a floral dress that was a little low cut and they really didn't like it. And, you know, I'm sure she, I didn't see her that day, but I'm sure it wasn't that bad and it could have worked for a brand like Millie or a brand like Tori or, you know, there's certain Kate Spade, you know, there are certain brands where a floral dress would be absolutely appropriate, but it was so wrong for this particular brand. And I that was, was it. They were, I, that was, it was over. It was over. It was over before it even started. So I think that you have to really think about, and that was, I believe, for an HR role. And so you can't go into a company looking completely wrong for the brand and expect it's going to go well when you are literally interviewing for a job that is about representing this company to the outside. So if someone has a great resume, like let's just pretend they went to Harvard, they've worked for like ridiculous companies and they come in and they interview and the interview doesn't go well. Mm -hmm. Are they out? Or do you like think, oh, maybe they're having a bad day? No, I think they're out. I think it doesn't matter where they went to college. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what experience they have and where they went to college. If they come in and they don't impress you with their energy and their people skills and they don't do well in the interview process, they are definitely out. So I have a story, which I'm sure you have your own counterpoint to my story. But I interviewed someone about a year ago for a director of PR position that I was hiring for. And the first person who came in, who will remain nameless, she was a rock star. I literally was like, oh my God, I don't even have to interview anyone else. Like, I'm done. We had a great meeting. Uh, she was at a fashion brand, a good fashion brand, and I was just feeling like I was all set. So I asked her, you know, for some references. And in the interview, she had name dropped a few people in the industry that, you know, were mentors and enough for me to go on to sort of do my back end research. So mm -hmm. she leaves. I reach out to one of the mentors that she name dropped on LinkedIn. And I said, hey, you know, I actually met with one of your mentees today. And she said, oh, I, I haven't spoken to her in like 10 years. I don't feel comfortable recommending her. So I was like, oh, high red flag. Mm -hmm. So then I had HR reach out for references. And one of the references that she – because she had given HR the references. So one of the women who HR called coincidentally had been someone that I was doing a brand partnership with at the time. The girl was at Maybelline. So I'm like, oh, I know her. I'll call her. Don't worry. So I call her and I say, hey, I, I met with, you know, so-and-so. And it's so funny that you're her reference because obviously we're working together. And I said, um, yeah, she's amazing. And she says to me, she's leaving already? And I said, well, no, she's been there for five years. She's like, Lisa, she started there three months ago. So I said, no. I'm like, here's her resume. She's like, can you read me her resume? So I'm like on the phone and I'm like, five years of company X, you know, two years of company Y, whatever. And I went through the whole resume and she's like, 
she literally removed like four companies from the resume and then rolled that time into her current position. Wow, that's shocking. Okay. So I was floored because also this is a small industry and that is such an easy fact check. Like how, I mean, wow. Yeah. Like I talk about the talented Mr. Ripley in my book, but wow. So, and then recently also when I was in my former role, I realized that someone who actually ended up working there has two different graduation years, one on LinkedIn and one on her resume. Because when I saw the one on LinkedIn, I was like, that's weird. I didn't think she was that young. And then I pulled out the resume again in which she's five years older on her resume than she is on LinkedIn. Wow. So people lie. That's crazy. I have never caught someone in a lie, but don't do it. I think that you can sometimes remove, like I suggested earlier, remove months and only list the years because that can remove a gap. I also think that for um, more experienced hires or candidates, it's okay to leave your date off of your graduation. I mean, I personally think that if you graduated in the 90s, it's fine. I mean, certainly if you graduated in the 2000s from college, it's fine. But, you know, when I see candidates who graduate in the 80s or even even before that in the 70s, I'm still seeing sometimes candidates, but I don't see a lot of graduates in the 70s, but sometimes I do. And I think if you graduate in the 80s, you're not that old. You're still really relevant and employable, in my opinion, but maybe don't highlight that you graduated in the 80s. I would say that there is some age discrimination, and I think to avoid it, I would just put your degree there at the bottom without mm-hmm. the date and then highlight maybe your last 20 years or most significant experiences. Like I do like to see a progression of a career path from graduation date on up to the current and it needs to absolutely be truthful. But I think that if there are some less relevant jobs that happened very early on that didn't take up a large part of your career time, that it's okay to maybe just focus on the last, you know, 15 years, say, 20 years. So let's say a candidate moves along. They don't lie about their (laughs) experience and they get an offer. And the person, you know, asks them about their salary requirements. So you were saying you should be asking for between 10 and 20% more. I think as an average, you should ask for 20% more than your total comp. I think that's probably roughly a good amount of an increase to ask for when you're looking for a new job. And there might be a little bit of variation if you are really well paid or maybe your base salary is really low, but a big part of your salary is equity or bonus or commission. So I think it varies, but I think 20% increase in total compensation is probably what you should be expecting if you are moving up in your career, meaning maybe you have three or five or seven years experience and you're moving to a role that is a progressive level, you know, whether it's a slightly bigger title or a slightly bigger business, but you're moving up and there are reasons why you should potentially make a little bit more money. That's the ideal. Now, on the flip side, I see candidates who maybe they have a lot more experience, maybe they're 25 years of experience and they're already a vice president or a senior vice president and then they're applying for another senior vice president role at a similar company. Maybe their role was eliminated or this company closed or something happened and maybe they spent a few minutes unemployed 
And then they're interviewing for jobs in that same type of functional area. And maybe they land at a place that they're really excited about, but the business is a little bit smaller, then they might take a 20% pay cut. So it's not a guarantee that you're going to keep getting a bigger salary until you die. And I think it's important to talk about that because I find, and I have interviewed candidates, I'm working currently on a role, a president role. And some of the candidates I spoke to were way above our budgeted salary level. And I really think it's a mistake to say, well, I was making X at this other company and that's too low for me. Because in that particular case, that person was consulting fine. And maybe that person was making a lot of money as a consultant and they're happy. But I think that if they're not employed currently and they have this number in their head that they have to hit, it's really a mistake because to stay in this business, I mean, fashion is a tough business. And I think to stay relevant and to continue to do interesting things when you are in your 40s, 50s and beyond, I think you have to be flexible on your salary requirements. I think there are certain candidates who get to a C-level and they're working for massive businesses that are public and they're making a lot of money, but that is a very, very, very small percentage of the candidates in the overall population. And I think that most people, most candidates need to be reasonable because I see even at the VP, SVP level, I see salaries going in the two to 300,000 salary range. I don't see a ton of things coming in over 300K. I do sometimes at the executive level, sometimes things go to the three to 400K range. I don't see a lot over that. And I think that if you're a VP or an SVP and you're flexible, I think it's really important. And I think there are all different ways that you can make up for taking a lower salary once you're at that point in your career, like flexibility and paid time off and all kinds of things that are really important to people in looking at their overall compensation package. And also, do you have leverage? Like, are you being pulled from a current job that changes everything? Yeah, that does. So, okay. If you get a job offer and it's low in your mind for whatever reason, you think you deserve more, you think market value is higher, whatever the case is, what is the appropriate way to deliver that message and to negotiate with an employer? I think... This is one of the hardest things to manage as a candidate, especially if you really want the job. Mm -hmm. So I actually had a candidate that I really admire recently tell me a story about a job that she accepted. It wasn't through me. It was just someone that I really like and has helped me with a few things and I've helped her and we've stayed in touch. So she was given an offer for a job that she really wanted to take. And she had done a lot of research about what these jobs pay and what other people in these jobs make. And I think that was the smartest thing that she did. So she understood the market value by doing a lot of research. And and to be honest, I don't even know the names of of websites that do this type of thing. But, you know, I know there are some out there that can tell you, you know, what Mm -hmm. different salary levels are and do some competitive benchmarking. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to help you, but in this case it did. So she got a job offer and they lowballed her. And her response was something to the effect of, I'm really excited about this job. I'm really excited about joining this company, but it's not a wow. 
Okay, that phrasing it like that is like cocky. She, I know. I mean, I have chills. So wow. she said, she said, and I want a wow number. Okay, so wait. Does she have leverage? Is this person like the queen of England? She's A-Land? really smart. And I do think that that is a very ballsy thing to say. I would ne- I mean, that's assuming they're like dying to have her. Well, and I think that they had, I think the thing you have to realize is that by the time a company makes you an offer, they want you. They want you. And they can always turn around and decide they don't want you. Well, that can backfire. It can backfire. It can backfire. And I don't remember if that was exactly the word that she used, but that was how I heard it. It was something to that effect of, I want this job, but that number that you offered me is not enough. You know, it was like, I want an offer that is going to make me thrilled to accept. And we're not there yet. Okay. So basically that's that a, is the that's point. a better way to say it. I yeah, think. but it was it was something along those lines of, you know, obviously you have to remain professional, but that was how I heard it. It was I'm really excited, but I'm not yet at that thrilled, wow, you know, ready to accept it. Um place. Could you imagine how funny would this be if like some guy like drops down on a knee and like proposes to a girl and she's like, "I want to marry you. I love you, but that ring is not a wow." <laughs> I can actually see that happening. Right? Wouldn't yeah. that be amazing? Yeah, we need to we need to upgrade that ring. But yeah, I think that's basically what she did. And she said, you know, she expressed enthusiasm for the offer, enthusiasm for the role. She ex- Did she get an increase? She did. Good for her. But I think you have to remember that once they do make you the offer, they do want you. However, I don't think it's smart to change your requirements once the, you realize that they want you. Meaning yes. if you're early on in the interview process and they ask you, what are your salary requirements? And you say, well, I'm looking for at least 125. And then they come back and they offer you 130. And then you say, well, actually, you know, now that I think about it, I really want 160. That is not going to sit well with the hiring manager or the company. And I think you have to stick to your guns, even if it's a matter of saying in the early process, listen, I need more information before I can give you a number mm-hmm. about you what know, the role give, is. Yeah, I need to understand the role. Although sometimes candidates will say to me, well, what does the job pay? And often what I'll respond and say is it's different for different candidates. And usually there is a rough budget, but it's not a one size fits all, meaning they might hire someone more junior because they're so impressed with that person with seven years experience, or they might hire someone more senior with 12 years of experience. Those people are not going to get the same offer. They're not going to make the same amount of money. And so I don't ever lead with this is what the job pays because the job may not pay that for that person. And the winning candidate may be someone who is more junior or more senior than they thought they might get. And they might have to stretch their budget or they might get to save a little money and pay a little less because that candidate isn't quite at the level that they would deserve that salary that they thought they might spend. If someone gets fired, there's two scenarios, right? Someone gets laid off or someone gets fired because of performance. Mm-hmm. How do you handle that when you go interview for jobs? I think it's good to be really direct and honest and then move on quickly. Like you would tell someone that you got fired from somewhere. 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to avoid. Sometimes you can avoid it. If the interviewer asks you very specific questions about your most recent job, like let's pretend you got fired three jobs ago or something like that, and they really focus on your most recent role and then also what you would bring to the table, they may not even notice that you were fired because interviewers don't always want to hear step by step the chronology of your career and why you left this place and went to the next because it's not always really that relevant. So they may not even notice. If you got fired from a company or laid off and then you started another job pretty quickly thereafter, let's say back to the removing the months thing, if you got fired in June, but by October you had a new role and they don't notice a gap there because you've only listed the years, Mm -hmm. they may not even bring it up and you may be able to avoid talking about it altogether. Now, if it later comes up through a reference check or something like that, oh, I think she got fired from such and such place. And then they call and they do a follow-up and they say, so I heard you got fired from this place. What happened? I think that the best thing you can do is just be honest, own your mistakes, maybe explain what you learned from the experience and then move on. Yeah. You know, hopefully it's not something that you did that was really illegal or, you know, disastrous to your career because I think that would be really hard to recover from. Toxic work cultures. There's so many of them. How do you think is the best way for employees to deal with either a bully boss, a coworker that wants to sabotage them? Like, you know, do they go to HR? Do they suck it up? Do they pull the person aside? Like, how do you, I mean, because I just feel like, I mean, I certainly get from Leave Your Mark, people write in from around the world and I'm floored. Well, first of all, how the problems are so universal. It doesn't matter where you work or where you live, but People, there's some just nasty people out there who really don't care who they push off the ladder just to get where they want to go. Yeah. I'm a firm believer. I mean, I've been very lucky. I mean, I spent, you know, five years at Kate Spade, five years at LVMH, and then I started my company and it's been 10 years on my own and I don't have to deal with that at all anymore, which is great. And LVMH, everyone I interacted with was so professional. I mean, I feel so lucky. But in general, I would say that If you are professional and you are doing your job and you are communicating well and you are owning your team and your responsibilities, everyone will notice. And if there's someone on your team or a counterpart or in another department that is trying to sabotage you or anyone else and creating a toxic environment, everyone else is going to see that too. I think it's very, very rare that someone can get away with that and no one will notice. Mm -hmm. So... I'm not a big fan of the going to tell HR thing because I don't know that that's really going to get you anywhere. And I think it becomes a he said, she said. And I think even just the tattletaling aspect of going to tell whomever about your opinion about what's happening is just a waste of your energy. I think that you just need to focus on really what your responsibilities are and do those to the best of your ability. And if you are working in a place where there are multiple toxic people, then I would say you need to get out. You were there five years, five years. I was 17 years. I think the kids today move around a lot quicker. Is there a standard for how long you should stay at a company? If it's, I guess, fine, but not your favorite place in the world, or you're bored, or you feel like it's not the right role, like... Is there a standard for you need to stay somewhere a minimum of X or is it just a free-for-all at this point? Yeah. 
I don't think it looks good to have multiple jobs in a row where you are there for less than a year. So occasionally you will freelance or have a gig or a contract somewhere for six months or nine months and then it ends and then you have to get another short-term job or something like that. Sometimes it's explainable, but I would say in general, it's good to show a progression where you've spent a significant portion of time at a company and you've been promoted at that company. So, you know, when I was at Kate Spade, I was promoted numerous times from assistant manager to store manager to regional manager. And then I left. And then when I went to LVMH, I went from one job, then I got promoted internally to a different job. And then I got promoted to a different job. So it shows that you're well-liked at the company, that other people internally want to work with you, that you continue to find opportunities and progress within your career at one company. And so I think it's good to show that at certain points in your career. Um, I said earlier about 18 to 24 months jokingly, but I think that most high potential people who are ambitious do get bored within 18 to 24 months. So I think that that for me is a magic number. And I think that a company needs to either present a growth opportunity at that point in the person's career. They either need to know what's coming next or they're going to be looking outside. However, let's say you're in a role for 18 to 24 months and there's no internal role that you can move to and you're ready and they know it. And these are conversations you should absolutely be having with your boss, your HR partner, your CEO. They should know, okay, this is what I wanna do with my career. You should feel like there is a career path for you And if there's not, it makes sense that you would want to look outside and go to a place where there is a path for you. Because I don't think we live in an age where we go to a job and stay in it forever. No, not at all. Okay, so this happens a lot. And I have a lot of opinions about this, and you will too. If you find out that a colleague makes more than you for the same level role, what do you do with that information, if anything, This is a hard one because I think that people do come into companies and they're making different levels of salary and they're also coming with very different experiences. And so it is common that two people and it doesn't it's not even male, female or white person, black person or, you know, it's really a matter of. Where is this person coming from? Which experiences have they had? What kind of responsibilities have they held? And where are they coming in? What are they asking for? And I think this is a really political question, especially now that we're talking so much about pay equity. And, you know, honestly, it's tricky. I think that if someone were to find out that they were making less, like a woman were to find out she were making less than a male counterpart um, or a woman of color was making less than, say, her, you know, white counterpart or something like that. If the experience is very, very similar and their work experiences in the past were very aligned and let's pretend that they happen to graduate the same year from a comparable college. I mean, if they're very, very much aligned and there's a big discrepancy, I think that they would absolutely have a case for pay equity and they could go to HR and say, I found out that so-and-so makes this much money and I want to talk about an increase. And I think that they would need to handle it very professionally. I think they would need to say, I found out about this and this is what I want to discuss. I want to, or I want to set up a meeting to talk about my compensation and here's what I found out and this is what I want and give them some time to respond. And I think that that is completely acceptable to do. And I think there may or may not be reasons why they came in at different salary levels. You know, maybe they asked for different salary levels. 
Um, and I don't think necessarily that roles are ever exactly equal. So I think it is really tricky. But I do think that this is probably something that now in this day and age we need to be more aware of. Social media profiles. Is it exhibit B after the resume? Like I think it is. Yes, definitely. I think that employers definitely want to see what someone's social footprint is. And I think that companies will Google someone, hiring managers, HR, they will Google someone to see are there photos of them online and what does their Instagram look like? How professional is it? Would they represent the company well in all facets of their life and on their digital, you know, profile? So I think it's important to make sure that whatever you put out there into the world is something that you're proud of and that you stand by. Because there's no difference between professional or personal life anymore. That's true. And not unless your accounts are private. And even then, I always maintain that damn screenshot. Yeah. I mean, if someone wants to screw you over, that's the best way to do it. Yeah. And I think it's, listen, I think it's hard. I think candidates, they do get discouraged. And I think there is so much competition. And, you know, employers, it's almost like matchmaking, I would imagine, where they're looking for a certain type and they're looking for a certain experience. And that's very specific. And it's like fitting into, you know, fitting a square into a round, round peg, right? Or mm-hmm. square peg into a round hole. Yeah. But this is incredible advice and you always give incredible advice everyone you should follow christy on instagram what is your instagram again at k hurt consulting at k hurt consulting which i do follow just did not memorize because i think you are someone who has absorbed a ton of information but also are gracious to share it so thank you so much for coming on leave your mark thank you so much for having me it was so much fun to talk to you Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you want to subscribe to my career advice newsletter, Blackboard, you can do so on alizalick.com. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at alizalickxo or reach out on Twitter at alizalickt. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.